Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, Thomas Mann, German Identity, and the Romantic Allure of Russia. Written and read by me, Jeremy Cliff. This article was originally published in the New Statesman magazine and online on the 27th of July, 2022. Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February changed everything. It transformed the post-Cold War security landscape of Europe, killed off any hopes of reconciliation between Moscow and the West for at least a generation, and gave the rest of the continent a direct stake, not just in Vladimir Putin's containment, but in his abject defeat. Heart-rending scenes of missiles hitting residential blocks and hospitals, of Ukrainian civilians killed and mutilated, have dramatised those new realities. If there was ever a time for ambiguity, it has passed. Yet in Germany, many are struggling to process all this change. Chancellor Olaf Scholz's federal government proclaims wholehearted support for Ukraine, but has procrastinated on sending weapons. A glimpse into the thinking behind this reluctance came on the 21st of June, when Scholz's chief foreign affairs advisor, Jens Plötner, chided journalists for concentrating so much on arms exports. Quote, you can fill a lot of newspaper pages with 20 marders, that is, armoured fighting vehicles for infantry. But larger articles about what will actually be our relationship with Russia in the future are somehow less frequent, end quote. The future of Berlin-Moscow relations, he argued, is at least as exciting and relevant an issue as weapons deliveries. In fact, significant parts of the German intelligentsia remain preoccupied by exactly that. In a succession of open letters, Writers, philosophers, actors and commentators have warned against disproportionate or escalatory responses, including weapons deliveries. Alice Schwarzer, a veteran feminist journalist and a convener of one of the letters, has demanded negotiations with Putin and has baselessly accused Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, of being a provocateur. With war fatigue setting in among voters and growing concerns over a gas shutdown this winter, the pressure for Berlin to push for some sort of settlement with Putin is growing. Confronted with this exasperatingly durable German urge to be a bridge to Russia, international observers often turn to history for explanations. 
Germany's decades-long reliance on Russian energy is one, and is related to a second, the legacy of the former West German Chancellor Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik from the late 1960s, seeking improved relations with Moscow, which is cherished particularly by Scholz's centre-left camp. Russophilia in the eastern German states has certain roots in their decades under Soviet sway. A 15-year-old Angela Merkel won a trip to Moscow as a prize for her performance in East Germany's National Russian Language Competition. And then, colouring everything, there is German guilt over Nazi-era atrocities committed against Russia and its people. All of these are persuasive explanations, and yet they are also inadequate. For it is impossible to understand the depth of German Russophilia, and with it the yearning for good relations with Moscow against even the grimmest of backdrops, by reading it off economic statistics or timelines of world historical events. One has to delve into culture and ideas, and go back much further than 1945, into the darker, older mists of the German psyche and imagination. Fortunately, there is a guide. Thomas Mann's Reflections of a Non-Political Man, 1918, republished in English last year, grew out of Mann's politicisation by the First World War and its role in the breakdown of his relationship with his brother, Heinrich. Where Thomas had embraced the nationalist fervour of 1914, his sibling rejected the war and called for a democratic German republic. Over the course of the conflict, the two issued thinly veiled broadsides at each other. Ostensibly, they were debating whether the political, that is, the progressive or radical, and the aesthetic belonged together. But more fundamentally, this amounted to a debate about the very nature of Germanness. Reflections was the cumulative work of this feud, by which point the brothers had stopped talking to each other. In it, Thomas drew on the German 19th century distinction, popularised by Friedrich Nietzsche, among others, between French and English civilization on the one hand, and German culture on the other. In his introduction to the text, the American political scientist Mark Leela describes civilization as, quote, reason, skepticism, humanitarianism, democracy and progress, and culture as, quote, more primordial, drawing energy from the dark side of human nature and producing greater depth of feeling and therefore greater art. Mann argued that the war had been necessary to uphold the conservative order that shielded these musical, philosophical and artistic depths of the German soul from the decadent, materialistic, civilizational West, of which he considered his Zivilisationsliterat brother, a derogatory term meaning civilization's literary man, a dismal lackey. Mann was drawing on the two most fundamental tropes of German identity a people defined by their culture rather than a fixed territorial nationhood, in contrast to, say, France and England, and a people who are not entirely of the Roman West. The Germanic tribes, after all, had largely dwelled beyond the Limes Germanicus, the fortified frontier that marked the northeastern boundaries of the Roman Empire in Europe. The Lutheran rupture from Roman Catholicism in the 16th century was fundamentally a German phenomenon. The kernel of the future German state was forged in opposition to Napoleonic France, and the liberal nationalist ideas of the revolutions of 1848 flopped among Germans and gave way instead to romantic conservative nationalism. This German sense of ambivalence towards the Roman West was often bound up with the lure of Russia, with which Germans had close cultural and political ties. 
These bonds had been strong since the reigns of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great, and could be traced further back to the medieval period and the Ostseedlung, when German-speaking merchants and artisans settled in parts of Eastern Europe. And so post-1848 notions of German culture, opposed to Western civilization, were closely associated with a perceived Russian kinship. Nietzsche's contempt for mediocre modern ideas, which he called French ideas which were English in origin, was matched by his yearning for Russia. The author of Beyond Good and Evil, 1886, venerated Fyodor Dostoevsky, describing, quote, that sudden instinctive feeling of having encountered a blood relative on reading the Russian's writing. And he hailed the expanses of Russia as that huge empire in between, where Europe, as it were, flows back into Asia. No two figures are more prominent in man's reflections than the duo of Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. Mann opens the book by citing approvingly the former's 1877 description of Germany as, quote, the protesting kingdom. Her eternal protest against the heirs of Rome and against everything that constitutes this heritage. Mann argued that this, quote, formulation of the German character, of German primeval individuality, of what is eternally German, contains the whole basis and explanation for the lonely German position between East and West. Over the course of the book, he wove this, quote, eternal Protestantism with two other things. The first was political conservatism. He called, quote, anti-radicalism the specific, distinguishing and decisive quality or peculiarity of the German spirit. The second was an elevation of wild, musical, emotional depth over orderly formalism, the Dionysian over the Apollonian, to use Nietzsche's taxonomy. This, Mann argued, left him in, quote, no doubt that German and Russian humanity are closer to one another than the Russian and French, and incomparably closer than the German and the Latin. After all, this shared humanity was rooted in a shared history of suffering. Quote, what a kinship in the relationship of the two national souls to Europe, to the West, to civilization, to politics, to democracy. It is no accident that it was a Russian, Dostoevsky again, who, as early as a generation and a half ago, found the expression for the antithesis between Germany, this great and special people, and Western Europe, the antithesis from which all our reflections began. End quote. Concluding the book, Mann looks ahead to the new post-1918 landscape of Europe and calls for, quote, peace with Russia, peace with her above all, and the war, if it continues, will continue against the West alone, against the trois pays libres, France, Britain and the US, against civilization, literature, politics, the rhetorical bourgeois, end quote. Post-1918 Germany should, in other words, at the very least adopt what is known in German as Mittellage, or middle position, between Russia and the West. Reading Reflections Today it is striking that the author of a work as humane as Buddenbrook's, his 1901 novel about the decline of a bourgeois northern German trading family, could produce such vitriolic reactionary prose. Yet it is best to view it as the product of a wartime fever dream, from which man would soon awaken. In the febrile early post-war years, he came to dislike his new conservative acolytes, who, as Leela notes, quote, placed him on a pedestal next to second-rate minds like Oswald Spengler. 
he reconciled with his brother and then, shocked by the assassination of the German-Jewish foreign minister Walter Rathenau by far-right militants in 1922, he delivered his speech on the German Republic, in which he distanced himself from many of the arguments of reflections. The new man thundered against sentimental obscurantism and called on German intellectuals to support the Weimar Republic. He would personify the struggles between Enlightenment humanism and Romantic rationalism in the clash between the characters Ludovico Settembrini and Leo Nafta in his 1924 masterpiece The Magic Mountain. It is a measure of the speed of man's shift from the authoritarian right to the democratic liberal left that he felt compelled to flee to Switzerland in 1933 on the ascent to power of Adolf Hitler, an extremist motivated by some of the irrationalist 19th century ideas that had so consumed man only 15 years before. He would acknowledge the irony of this in a 1938 essay entitled Brother Hitler. A more explicit renunciation of reflections came the following year, when Mann, now living in the US, wrote of his non-political German that his elegant disdain of democratic revolution has made him the tool of another revolution, an anarchic one, running amok to threaten the foundations and props of all our Western morality and civilization. The completion of the author's political journey towards the Roman and Anglo-Saxon West came both intellectually and geographically during his wartime years in Los Angeles. From his Californian exile, Mann gave German-language radio broadcasts, denouncing Nazism on the BBC, and came to know Franklin D. Roosevelt, idolising him as he had once idolised Dostoevsky. In a speech at the Library of Congress, three weeks after the surrender of Nazi Germany in 1945, Mann argued that his homeland's war guilt had deep roots in the country's psyche and laid particular blame on the morbid Wagnerian romanticism he had once championed. As the rose bears the worm, he said, German romanticism's innermost character is seduction, seduction to death. These ideas took literary form in his 1947 novel Dr. Faustus, which drew on Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's magnum opus Faust to depict Germany's national seduction to death by the diabolical forces of Nazism. The essay continues after this break. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Man's homeland would soon walk the political and intellectual path that he had taken, while the part of Germany under Soviet control would remain padlocked to Moscow in what became East Germany, roughly three-quarters of Germans ended up in the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, when it emerged in 1949. This new entity became everything that the man of 1918 had loathed – democratic, consumerist and avowedly Western – the new republic's first chancellor was Konrad Adenauer, a Francophile, Catholic, democratic moderate from Cologne who looked instinctively westwards and prioritised the so-called Westbindung, the link with the West and security and rehabilitation this offered, over the old Mittellager. This new Germany fetted man as a pillar of German letters, unsullied by the Nazi years. His novels, banned under Hitler, became bestsellers, in 1949, he received the Goethe Prize, one of Germany's highest literary awards. The Federal Republic's social market economy was modelled on Rooseveltian New Deal principles that man had so admired in America, and resembled the, quote, middle-class democracy in the Western Roman sense that, in reflections, he had argued would, quote, take away from Germany all that is best and complex. His vision for a, quote, European Germany, not a German Europe, and a free Germany in a European federation would soon take shape with the creation in 1951 of the European coal and steel community, which would grow into today's European Union. Mann lived to see West Germany join NATO in May 1955, dying three months later, an appealing conjunction which could be taken as a neat symbol of the final reconciliation of the novelist's journey with that of his country. Too neat, in fact. For Germany's story is not as binary as this chronology suggests. While man, and the country, travelled a long political path between the early and mid-20th century, there were points of consistency throughout. 
man imagined Germanness on a spectrum of traits. Even in Reflections, he did not argue that the romantic streak in German nature was its sum total, just as he did not argue that German and Russian cultural affinity was absolute. Rather, the Germanness he described was fundamentally a Mittellage, an in-between state, quote, between a burger and an artist, between a protester and a westerner, a conservative and a nihilist. His 1918 Russophile conservatism was an argument about which side of this in-between state his fellow Germans should prefer when faced with a choice. Even the man of the post-war years cleaved to this dualism. The protagonist of Dr. Faustus, his 1947 personification of Germany, is an Enlightenment man who succumbs to the powerful and diabolical undertow of irrational romanticism. In essence, he is caught between the two traditions, rather as Goethe himself had straddled them. Nor did the elderly man gravitate to absolutes in his political outlook. He abhorred the partition of Germany and Europe, and seems to have considered Adenauer too comfortable with the Federal Republic's alienation from the East, calling it in private his Vatican-American West Germany. The European Federation of which he dreamed spanned East and West. Mann remained ambivalent about his homeland until the end of his life, choosing to spend his final years on the shores of Lake Zurich. But all of this really makes Mann an ideal symbol for modern Germany. The complex of his impulses and contrasts, of his internal battles and transitions, captures an aspect of the country that endures even as Putin's tanks rumble across Ukrainian soil, a tension between its straightforwardly Western political vocation a Westbindung challenged only by the hard right and hard left, and its sometimes more fraught cultural and emotional sense of itself in a Mittellager. The irrationalist pull on the German psyche remains. And for as long as it endures, so too will the deep romantic appeal of Russia, the ineffable tug exerted on German hearts by clichés like deep birch forests, onion-domed churches, samovars, infinite snowy expanses, and Dostoevsky the country's Russia complex, as the German historian Gert Koenen titled his 2005 book. Understand that, and you understand the turmoil that Europe's new security reality causes Germans. After all, a major part of the euphoria the country felt over the fall of the Berlin Wall and reunification was the sense that this old tension had finally been resolved. Germany would no longer have to choose between West and East between politics, or civilization, and spirit, or culture, between Anglo-French rationalism and Russian depth. Their country's long, awkward Mittellager now placed it at the heart of a peaceful, united Europe stretching from the Atlantic to the Urals. Putin, who knows Germany relatively well, having lived in Dresden in the 1980s, appealed directly to this in his 2001 speech to the Bundestag, invoking both the Enlightenment, freedom and humanism of the German poet Gotthold Ephraim Lessing and the romanticism of Dostoevsky. Understand the intensity of this dream, and you also understand why the German establishment has clung to it for so long, why Russia's turn away from the West under Putin has been so hard to accept, why political figures like the former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, the leading proponent of Germany's gas dependency on Moscow, wax poetic about the Seelenverwandtschaft, spiritual kinship between Germans and Russians, 
why his fellow former Chancellor Helmut Schmidt scandalously called the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014 understandable, and why Merkel, although intellectually committed to the Westbindung, kept a portrait of Catherine the Great in her chancellery office and deepened that energy dependency even after 2014. It is also to grasp why Schultz's reformist liberal-left German government is wringing its hands about, quote, our future relationship with Russia and struggles to take seriously the pleas of the countries, Poland, the Baltics, and of course Ukraine itself, wedged between Germany's eastern border and Russia. Russia's war in Ukraine has challenged many of the German establishment's policy assumptions. But more than that, it has exposed conflicts in the country's basic identity. East or West, Mittelager or Westbindung, rational or romantic, that are still not settled. There is some evidence that younger Germans, those who've grown up since the wall fell, are more firmly Western in outlook than older ones. Polling shows they are more likely to back a more, quote, responsible Germany, a fairly reliable proxy for the Westbindung over, quote, restraint, the language of the Mittellager. There is also a notable generational divide between the older intellectuals who predominate among the signatories of the open letters promoting negotiation with Russia, such as Schwarzer, born in 1942, and the younger signatories of opposing letters that urge Germany to stand with Ukraine. Time will tell whether these are indications of a bigger shift. It is tempting to wonder what man would have made of today's Germany, and where he would have come down in the battle of the open letters were he still around. Would his romantic, Dostoevsky-loving spirit have found the prospect of permanently frozen relations with Russia too much to bear, and the vision of a Mittellager too emotionally resonant to give up? Or would his FDR-loving, democratic rationalism have put him on the side of sparing no effort to arm Ukraine? He certainly would have been intrigued by Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedian-turned-war leader, but quite what the old novelist would have made of his country's plight now, with its moral constitution under greater strain perhaps than at any point since 1945, is unclear. And in that very ambivalence, he stands as a fine symbol of a federal republic whose long journey, emotional, cultural and political, is far from over. Thomas Mann, German Identity, and the romantic allure of Russia was written and read by me, Jeremy Cliff. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Wrestling with Orwell, Ian McEwan on the art of the political novel, which is linked in the show notes. This has been audio long reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson, the features editor is Melissa Deans, and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe and rate the show. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. 
Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.